Merciful and gracious Father, we are thankful to you for your word, the Bible. We ask for insight this evening as we have it open before us. And we're conscious that uh, this is one of those places where your word, rather than speaking things to us simply, challenges us with questions that uh, hover under the surface of this uh, wonderful but complex and enigmatic story, the narrative of these historical events which took place thousands of years ago in the book of Ruth. We thank you for this little book. We ask that you'd open our eyes to see in it glorious and wonderful things. And as you do so, would you reshape our relationships with one another so that they echo more closely the Christ-likeness that we ought to be displaying in all of our relationships with one another. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, welcome once again. I, I see a few new faces, and you are most welcome. Particularly great to have you with us. Glad you could join us. Um, uh, I'm going to read Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, to the end of the chapter. You Just briefly, you remember where we were last week. Um, uh, uh, Naomi... Uh, and her family moved to Moab, and her family died, but not before the two sons, Mahlon and Killian, uh, had married. And so at this time, uh, Naomi, who is the subject of verse 6, is uh, with her two daughters-in-law in Moab, wondering what to do next. Recording in progress. We Okay. That sounded ominous. All right. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will, be die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. 
And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Alrighty, so I promised you great things in this little series of Bible studies, which I subtitled, Men Aren't From Mars, Women Aren't From Venus, So Why Does It Sometimes Feel Like They Are? Uh, I promised that we would explore uh, all the complexities of relationships between uh, men and women, marriage in particular, but not just in marriage. I'm conscious that many of you here are married, but some of you are not. Some of you are rather young to be married. Others of you are not married. And uh, those uh, situations in which the Lord has placed you are still spoken to by the text that we're working through uh, in an attempt to understand human relationships, and particularly between men and women, the book of Ruth. Um, And so I promised that we'll deal with a whole range of different issues. And tonight I want to speak about one in particular. I want to speak directly to one specific group of people who, whenever anybody mentions marriage, or whenever anybody mentions relationships between men and women, uh, feel a... I don't know quite how it feels, but perhaps a, uh, a pang of uh, longing, uh, a kind of a wishing that that's something that I had. I want to speak tonight specifically to single people. Now, that's not to say that this won't be relevant to everybody else. I, I think you know the Bible well enough by, by now to know that the Bible can be addressing one particular group of people and actually have all kinds of implications for uh, many, many other people. One of the things that we'll very quickly see as we're thinking about singleness and reflecting on this passage is that for those of us who are blessed to be married, we are blessed to be married. Um, the, the, The almost inexpressible emotional depth that... Uh, Naomi and Ruth in particular share here, and which Orpah does as well, testifies to um, the enormous privilege that we who are married have. Um, If you're married and you're sitting next to your spouse, you might just want to glance at her or him and just, as Calvin wouldn't have said, count your lucky stars. The Lord has been I noticed that none of you turned your head sideways then. It's like, that's too embarrassing. I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, the Lord has blessed you uh, extraordinarily. And to, to nurture that relationship and to prize it as a most precious gift is 
uh, your calling. And I, I trust that as you listen to these women wrestling, three single women wrestling with their singleness, one of the things that will be a take home for you will be, my goodness, um, perhaps I should give closer and keener attention to cultivating and nurturing the relationship I'm blessed to have with my wife or my husband. But be that as it may, I want to uh, work through this text. And um, you'll, you'll recall that the book of Ruth addresses the, the relational issues that I want to share with you and talk about in a particular way. Let me just recap a little bit from last week. You remember that I did sketch for you um, some of the problems in contemporary Christian marriages and in actually just generally the understanding that men and women have of each other from just understanding masculinity and femininity. What are those characteristics? What makes a man different from a woman apart from the obvious, the biology? But what does godly masculinity and godly femininity look like distinctively? How do we handle the problems of communication that tend to arise in male-female relationships? Um, How would we deal with singleness if we're single or choose a marriage partner if that's something that's on our mind? Um, What does it mean for a husband to be head of his wife and for a wife to submit to her husband? And what is it... How do we handle cultural differences in marriage if they exist and do they ever exist or do they always exist and are they an issue and yes they are and so how do we deal with them? Um, How do we handle hard times? How do we understand the distinctively different ways in which men and women respond under emotional pressure and so on? And those problems in contemporary Christian marriages have been addressed inadequately in my view in contemporary Christian pastoral theology. Um, And it's not for want of trying, because there is acres and acres and acres of books and all kinds of online material about this. And some of it's very good, and some of it is not very good. And one of the problems with the stuff that isn't very good is that it adopts a single posture to the task of teaching. It's um, purely uh, aphoristic, normative principles, commands, instructions. You should do this. Or propositional descriptions of, let's say, masculinity or headship or submission. And of course there's truth in those, um, but they, they only look at the, the issue from one particular perspective. For example, um, the example I gave last week, What does masculinity mean? Masculinity means strength in sacrificial leadership. Okay. Well, I think it does. I think that's a good summary of masculinity. But it it doesn't really address the issue of, well, let's say 1 Peter 3, 7, where husbands are called to live with their wives according to knowledge, literally, in an an understanding way. 1 Peter 3, 7... Uh, not to mention Ephesians 5 and many other biblical texts, call men and teach men to try to see the world through their wives and through women's eyes. 
And the, the name for the biblical quality that allows you to navigate the complexity of life, when you stop thinking about it in simple rules, like I'm the head, you should submit, when you stop thinking about it just in terms of simple rules and you start trying to actually live in an, a godly and thoughtful way, the name for that quality is wisdom. Wisdom is, as one scholar put it, I can't remember who it was, skill at life. I think that's a brilliant description of wisdom. It's the the capacity to handle well all of the different kinds of situations and relationships that life throws at you. And sometimes what you need is a normative, you should do this. Sometimes what you need is just the relational awareness to just kind of understand where somebody's coming from and sometimes what you need is the awareness of the circumstances that make somebody act in a certain way and that create certain anxieties or fears in them and so again I mentioned this before we'll talk about it in more detail at some point in the background here is John Frame's analysis of Christian ethics and actually everything else normative rules existential or relational relationships, motives, desires, and situational, that is, consequences, uh, circumstantial factors. And all of these three angles we need to learn to um, appreciate. And wisdom literature in the Bible teaches us not just norms. It teaches us to think about the situation that we're in and the consequences that might eventuate from certain courses of action and it teaches us to understand our hearts and other people's hearts. And Ruth actually ought to be thought of as a piece of wisdom literature. You remember I mentioned last week that in the um, ancient Hebrew division of the Bible, there were three parts, law, or no, not law, Torah. We call it law that because... Torah in Hebrew becomes nomos in Greek, which means law, roughly, in English. But, so it's not wrong to call it law, but Torah means something more like instruction or teaching. Torah, which is the first five books. Prophets, which is both the writing prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all those, those guys, all those other 12 people. Um, and also some of the non-writing prophets, so Joshua, Judges, books of Samuel, books of Kings. So that's the prophets. And everything else goes into the so-called writings, where in different ways it contributes to wisdom. And most obviously things like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes come come under the heading of wisdom. But actually where where, uh, Ruth was situated in the Hebrew Old Testament canon was among um, the the five scrolls, so-called. Song of Songs, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, a wisdom book, and the book of Esther. And actually, you remember where it was located? This is a um, pop quiz time. between which two books was Ruth actually situated in the early Hebrew canon? The, the, the canon probably that Jesus used. Remember where it was? It was after what and before what? After, yeah, very good. After Proverbs and before Song of Solomon. A very deliberate decision. Because at the end of Proverbs, you've got the description of what? Come on. The, the wise woman, the woman of noble character, the one who's prized more than rubies by her husband who sits in the gates as an elder in the land, a man of dignity and respect, who praises her in the gates. So in Proverbs 31, you have this woman who is praised by her husband, and then you go straight into the book of Ruth as though you're expecting to find there 
an example of a godly husband who's going to find a praiseworthy wife. Well, that's what you find, yeah? And then the very next book after um, Ruth is, of course, the Song of Solomon, which is the, the love song between the archetypal groom and his bride. And so it's a picture of Christ and his church. It's also Solomon and, and one of his many wives. Oh, my goodness, Solomon. Um, you see how it works. And, and Ruth, so Ruth shows how, if you, if you wanted to cultivate love like the Song of Solomon, and you're a man, you want to be like Boaz. And you need to find a woman like Ruth, because that's the, the narrative that Ruth lays before us. It's the story of how the Lord goes from the end of the book of Judges, which is in our canon, the end of the book of Judges, where there's no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes and the whole land is in chaos. And four chapters later, you've got David at the end of a genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth because Ruth has married Boaz, the redeemer, who's a bit like Jesus because, you know, redeemer. Um, and, and they've had a child, uh, Obed, who's had a son, Jesse, who's had another son, David. Final word in the book. So he's got this big salvation historical sweep is the turning point of the Old Testament from the chaos of judges to the journey towards kingship in the book of Samuel. But it has this extraordinary emotional um, depth to it because it depicts these unfolding relationships. And you remember some of the things we talked about last week when we we're looking through the first five verses, just glance down at them. And you notice, so one of the things that happens like earlier in the book, verse 1, there's a famine in the land, and you think famine, yeah, God's judgment, because days of the judges. And a man from Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the, in the country of Moab, or literally the fields of Moab. And so was this a good decision or a bad decision? Good decision, because he's got to feed his family, and the land's under the judgment of the Lord because of the famine, so get out of there. Or is it a wicked and evil thing, turning away from the God of Israel who'd given Israel the land and going to the gods of Moab? And substituting the land of Israel for the fields of Moab. Is he a compromiser? Is he a, a godly man trying to provide for his family? And we don't know. And neither would his wife, because he doesn't say a word to her. He just says, we're going. And the text is really striking. Uh, the man went. Oh, yeah, he and his wife and his two sons. And, and it, it prompts the thought. You see, this is how, remember, we spent a lot of time last week, I'm trying to emphasize, this is how the book of Ruth teaches about relationships. It doesn't give you answers. It asks you questions. And as you process the questions and find yourself un unable to answer them, the process of trying to figure out the options leads you through an exploration of all the different things that could have gone right or could have gone wrong. So maybe he's just a strong leader. And he's got to make a decision. And the man decided, and he, and he went, and he took his family with him. And sometimes you've got to do that, right? But sometimes it's a good idea to talk to your wife. And they only went to Sojourn, but they went to the land of Moab, and they remained there. You remember that at the end of verse 2? Is it end of verse 2? And many wives have had that experience of, Husband making a decision, informing her of it subsequently, trying to reassure you that, don't worry, it's not going to be serious or it's not going to be too long or we can always change our minds. And then 10 years later, here we still are. And like, wait, we, I, never really I never remember discussing this, darling. <laughs> it just forces us to ask those questions, doesn't it? Um, it's fascinating as well. You look at the boys. Um, after Elimelech died... 
the two sons took Moabite wives. I remember we talked a bit about that, like um, perhaps that's just because they weren't old enough before. Um, perhaps it's because their father was a tyrant or a nationalist, wouldn't let them marry a Moabite. Or maybe it was he was a godly man and didn't want them to marry someone who would not walk with them in the ways of the Lord. And, but when he'd gone, they're like, oh, now dad's dead. We don't have to listen to mum. It's just mum. Yeah? And how many young uh, 19-year-olds who think they're 25 and are acting like they're 14 have had an attitude like that towards their mothers? Well, these guys wouldn't have been the last if they were the first. So again, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I know an answer to, the answer to some of the historical questions, but some of them we just don't know, and they're there to make us think. And in this passage that's before us now, well, I mean, you, you get to the end of verse 5, and it's, it's chilling. The, all the names that glitter like little diamonds from verse 1, names of places, through verse 2, 3, and 4, Elimelech and Naomi and Marlon and Kilian and Ephrathites, Bethlehem, Judah, Moab, Elimelech, Naomi, Orpah, Ruth, Marlon, Kilian, all those names, and they just disappear at the end of verse 5, and the woman is left. She's the subject of, of two clauses in verses 1 to 5. Twice, it says, um, she was left. And the sense is left alone. Verse 3, she was left alone with her two sons. Verse 5, the woman, the nameless, hooded, anonymous figure, was left alone again. This time without her two sons and without her husband. And that's the end of verse 5. And then you turn the corner into verse 6. The only thing that she's done so far in this narrative is to be left alone. And what does she do at the start of verse 6? By the way, footnote, pause, one second. I was racking my brains. I lay awake last night wondering how to arrange the tables to get you guys to contribute more. Then I realised probably the tables aren't the problem. It's probably me just talking too much, isn't it? And it's Wednesday night and you're all a bit tired and it's like we've had three days and two more to go. Um, but please... If I ask a question, come on, give me an answer. And if you have questions, stick a hand in the air and interrupt me. Will you do that? So verse 6, come on, what does she do? Yeah, she arose. Death, 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 verses 1 to 5. And she arose. It's one word in Hebrew. Does that remind you of anything? Come on. Yeah, like Christ's resurrection. So here's Naomi. A picture of Jesus who rises in the midst of death. Maybe. Uh, Why does she arise? Just look at verse 6 with me. Go on, sorry, somebody said something in this sort of general direction. Are you any ventriloquists in the crowd tonight? Go on, Jeff. She heard the Lord. Very good. Thank you, Jefferson. Yeah. Look, look with me at verse 6. She'd heard 
And notice it said again, in the fields of Moab, little, put the boot into old Moab again, that the Lord had visited his people to, to give and given them food. By the way, there's, hands up if you're under the age of 18. You're still young enough to learn Hebrew. Excellent. There's a beautiful, when you've learned Hebrew, you can read this verse, the end of verse 6, and, it, and it's, when it says, to given them food, it's given lachem uh, sorry, lachem lachem. Lachem means to them, and lachem means bread. Given to them bread. It's like a lovely way of rounding off the end of a kind of semi-poetic clause. And there's something wonderful. Like the house of bread, which is what Bethlehem means, bet lechem, house, bet, of bread, lechem, was empty of bread. But now God has given lachem lachem. He's given to them food, bread. And so she arises because she hears that the bread of life has found its way to Bethlehem. Huh? Isn't that amazing? Because if, if Naomi is the hero, heroine, sorry, of this story, then it's because she, what she really wants above all else is Jesus, correct? Like the, the way to be the hero of a story is to want Jesus above everything else. And maybe that's what she wants. Or, come on. She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. What might be the other motivation for her going back? Husband. Yeah, possibly her husband, yeah. I mean, is her home, yeah. I mean, it might be, you know, she's a picture of this longing for the bread of life. But it might just be that she's hungry. Well, we talked about, too, the land being tied to an inheritance. And that mm-hmm. they sort of would have given that up. And it's interesting that uh, later on it says, like, the land of Judah. Mm, yes. Yeah, the contrast again, land of Judah, fields of Moab. Um, the, the, the possibilities about all these different motives are there under the surface. Most of them are good. I mean, there's, there's always the possibility that she's just after an easy life, but who would begrudge her that? I mean, like, it's only bread, and, you know, she's going to starve if she can't eat. So you get to the end of verse 6, and you're thinking... She's risen like Jesus. She's gone back, or she's on her way back to find the bread of life. Um, she arose, though, look, look I've, um, if you look at the notes I've printed out for you, she arose with her daughters-in-law to do what? Return. Return. Um, and what do you notice about the printed handout that I've given you? Uh, and that particular little word, return. Beg your pardon? Shub. Um, the, the but with a line under it is like a v. So shuv. Shuv. Get Hebrew lesson thrown in for free. But yes, KB. Yeah, it's repeated over and over again. How many times do you notice? It's not, it is a chiasm. I, I thought of including the chiasm. But I, I couldn't find space for it on the back. I didn't want to print three pages because then I have to get um, Sam Robinson to staple them all together. And he's like, 
you'd be like, oh, really, Pastor Jeffrey? And he'd do it, obviously, because he's a good guy. But uh, How many times? Right. Um, very good. So you know the word shuv, return, in Hebrew is the same as a very, very theologically significant word. And you've heard me say this if you've been paying attention in sermons before. I'll, I'll mime it for you, see if you can remember. So I'm going this way. I'm going to shuv. T- turn around. Yeah. Turn back. Repent. Who said repent? Yeah, Aaron and oh, Pastor Shaw, obviously. Yeah, that's cheating, right? <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't say that. I thought he was pointing at you. Oh, it's Daniel Robinson. Okay. And Mrs. Claghorn, you're just being really coy. Like, you're saying these things and not letting your lips move so that I just, I'm like, who said that? But, yeah, the, um, inter- interesting um, uh, tidbit here, right? Um, biblical Hebrew has a really sparse vocabulary. Quite a small number of words. I mean, it's like 5,000 or something. Um, which is quite a lot to learn, but, but it's, it's smaller than you'd expect for a document of its size. And what that, that arises from the, a number of features of how the language works. One of them is that words tend to have a whole range of different meanings. Their semantic domain is quite broad in technical terms. And so return, turn, turn back, repent, all the same word, shuv. Now, what do you think? As you're looking back at verses 1 to 5, you're thinking... We're entertaining the possibility, aren't we, that maybe Elimelech, maybe, I'm not sure, but maybe he did wrong in leaving Israel to go to Moab. Maybe, we don't know for sure, but we, it's possible. He didn't consult his wife and they go there and now she's stuck there and now the men have all died and she's left on her own. And so the very next thing she does is to arise and repent. What do you think? I mean, a, a, a woman, and again, remember, I'm not, I'm not telling you that this is what Ruth and, oh, sorry, Naomi and Elimelech's relationship was like. I'm suggesting that this is one of the possibilities that the narrative sets out for us. It's a, it's a, a woman who is submissively following her husband, even though he's making some bad decisions. And as soon as she's able to, she repents. Do you know anybody like that? I mean, that happens quite a lot. And that would be a good thing if a woman had gotten herself into a position where her husband was doing dumb things and then he died or left her for her to repent of the things that she led him into. It's a painful thing to talk about, isn't it? Mrs. Clackhorn, you had your hand up a minute ago. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do I think the, the famine reached Moab? Uh, probably not, for a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, uh, in terms of the text, it's connected with the judges, and the implication is it's a divine judgment, and therefore it's going to be focused on the people who are the object of God's wrath in this instance, which are the people of Israel. The second reason to think that this is not necessarily a wider extent, is because of the geography, and the geography permits quite sharp regional variations in agricultural performance, you know, um, because it's near the sea and there are lots of hills, so the rain becomes very localised. And if you don't get rain up in Carmel in the north, 
and on the fertile plain east of, uh, west of the Jordan. Well, that land's done for, but you could get rain down in the south, um, further west in, in Moab, it's possible. Um, yeah, so, all right. So, so just, you get to the end of verse 6, and all these different pictures, all these different possibilities are set before you. This woman, a single widow, my goodness, she is surrounded by death, and like Jesus, she arises. She'd heard of the Lord's favor, and she responded to the Lord's favor. She repented of some of the foolishness which she may have followed under the leadership of her now deceased husband. So if, you know what I mean? It's like, wow, this lady's something else, isn't she? But. There's always a but, isn't there, when you have a, a tangled biblical narrative like this. Somebody mentioned there are 12 instances of the word shuv, or repent, or return. Just look through them with me and tell me what you notice. In verse 6, they're returning towards Judah, yes? Verse 7, she set out from the place where she had gone with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return, shuv, to the land of Judah. Returning to the land of Judah, returning to the land of Judah, but... Here is the smack in the eye when just when Naomi had become your hero and you thought you might name your daughter after her, which, by the way, would be a great thing to do, Naomi. It's okay. Um, Verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. Where where is Naomi urging her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, to shuv? to to return to yeah go go back to your land so can you see how that complicates the picture what Naomi why are you not why are you not inviting your daughters-in-law to come with you why are you sending them back to their place like don't you believe the grace of the Lord would be enough for them What could possibly be more important to these two young widows than coming and meeting with the Lord and his people in the land of Judah and enjoying the Lord's blessing? Why are you sending them away to shuv, to return, back to the land of idols? Why? What's the answer to that question? Yeah, um, Right. You're, you're, you're very kind and gracious, Sophia. It almost looks as though she's prioritizing. <laughs> yeah, it does, rather, doesn't it? It almost looks as though she's prioritizing them finding a husband over coming to know the living God. So just look at it with me. Look at these verses. So verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to repent, to return back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. Come back to that in a second. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
The Lord grant that you may find rest. Each of you in the house of her husband. Not the house of bread. Not the house of the Lord. But the house of your husband. In the land of Moab. That's where you're going to find rest. And she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Okay, now just hold on here one second. Um, um, Good or bad thing to suggest? Your your daughters-in-law are a generation younger than you. Perhaps they're 20-something, maybe 30-something, but they're not going to be much older than that. Probably 30 or less. Um, They're young enough to marry again. They're not likely to find husbands in um, Israel. Um, why wouldn't you just say, "Look, go, go and go and find a husband"? Yeah, very likely they could have been rejected in the land of Israel. We know what Israel was like in the days of the judges. Not not a nice place for. Um, people from neighboring nations to be. And Bethlehem, if you, I, I, if you recall last time, last week, I, I, I know you guys sometimes listen online, yeah? Bethlehem, in the days of the judges, was a particularly unpleasant place for single women to be, for all the reasons that are highlighted in Judges 19. Um, you know the, um, the little phrase I said, that the house of her, to her mother's house, that appears in two other places in the, the Old Testament. Um, turn with me to either Song of Songs um, 3 verse 4 or 8 verse 2 and um, tell me what you find. What happens in the house of the mother or the mother's house? found it this gentleman here pardon me your name I've forgotten with a blue shirt and the glasses on your have, have you have you found song of songs 3 verse 4 or 8 verse 2 anybody going to be brave and tell us what happens in the house of the mother she teaches, him. She teaches who Scarcely, this is Song of Songs 3, verse 4. Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and I wouldn't let him go until I'd brought him into my mother's house. Song of Songs, verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 4, sorry. The, the, The mother's house is where you take your, the man you've just fallen in love with to meet your mum, because obviously you do. You don't want to let him go to get in there. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 2. Um, again, this is another love song by a woman. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. See? The, the, the mother's house 
in the Song of Solomon is the place where the besotted bride wannabe-to-be takes the guy of her dreams prior to the wedding. And so then Ruth and Naomi says, go back to, to Ruth chapter 1, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. You see what she's saying? I mean, it's reinforcing what Sophia said. Yeah, go, go to a place where you could find and introduce your family to the man of your dreams. Is that, would that be such a bad thing? What, what's the tension that um, this decision places upon Ruth and Orpah? They start crying. I mean, go back to the house of your mother where you might find a husband or go where? Sophia mentioned this earlier. Where, where's the alternative? Yeah, go to the land of Judah. So you see where they're placed in a, a position where they have a choice. The, the choice is, it's pretty clear, laid before them by Naomi. Like they want to return with her to Judah, to where the Lord is now blessing his people. But Naomi wants them to return to their mother's house where they could find a husband. They, they've got to choose now. And so they burst into tears. They're like on the road from Moab, and probably outside the city that they lived in, and they're just like tears rolling down their cheeks. They lifted up their voices and wept. And they said, look, verse 10. Um, they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? And you see, Jeff, Jeff's um, suggestion here is exactly right. The assumption is, like, the only guys in Judah that ever want to marry them would be Naomi's sons. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Um, suggest that, okay, maybe there would be some other people who might marry them, but we know for a fact that wouldn't probably be doing them much good. Israel is not a place where you're going to find a great husband right now. No, my daughters, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so you, the, um, you've got this tension. Which way are you going to return? Which way are you, are you going to repent, Shuv? Or are you going to return to the house of your mother, Shuv? What do you want? Do you want the Lord? Or do you want a husband? And so you can see that this text confronts you, uh, single ladies in particular, uh, with the painful reality that you may get to a, a moment in your life where you have to choose it doesn't tell you that you will all have to choose. It's not that kind of a text. Obviously, people's lives are different. But the, the painful reality is that um, 
Sometimes people aren't married as soon as they wished they could be, and they know they more likely could get married more easily if they lowered their standards. And let me tell you, there is no Christian woman on earth who needs a husband so badly that she can afford to marry a bad one. And as you see the anguish of these ladies, it's, I, don't know what it's, I don't know what it says to you. I mean, for some of you, you're, you're still very young. It's not like, you know, you're 16 or 17. It's like, well, you wouldn't have expected to have met him yet. That's it's fine. Um, well, it's probably a good thing for you to, to know ahead of time. Like, you, please don't grab the first guy who comes along, unless he's like Boaz or something, or Jesus, you know. Right? Um, it's more painful for... Okay, look, there's just no easy way of saying this. It's, it's more painful for those of you who are older, isn't it? It just is. It's more painful for those of you who've been married before, like these ladies. Yeah, Douglas. No, you're right. There, there wouldn't have been a guarantee of, of finding a husband. Um, the, uh, even for them back in Moab, yeah. Um, sometimes the, the, um, the circumstances, though, the, um, uh, it, it depended on the age profiles and the population profiles. So in a time of war you're going to struggle to find a husband because quite a lot of the men are dead just because of military service. So you might have a, an imbalance towards a female population generally. In times of peace, um, you tend to get um, uh, an age profile that can be skewed the other way. So men, true, men can become injured or even die in agricultural accidents, but more women died in childbirth. And so quite often you would find in, in ancient cultures there will be a, a in peacetime, there will be a kind of shortage of ladies for the men to marry. Uh, so on balance, it might be a little easier for them because of that if Moab weren't at war. But you're right, there's certainly no guarantee. But I, I, I guess I was thinking, though, that you know, going with the war, at least you have the guarantee of the war. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, if, I mean, if, if we can just afford to be um, probabilistic about it, like you're 100% certain to receive the Lord if you turn to him. You're not 100% certain to find a husband if you stake all your hopes on, on that. Um, and certainly not to find a, a great one. And particularly if you lower your standards to, to do that. Now, look, I want to just flip over the page a moment. Um, and I want to commend to you a book by Paul E. Miller called A Loving Life. I encountered this book nearly 10 years ago. Actually, this was the first time I ever taught the Book of Ruth in America. There we are. How about that? And it was at the first ever Gloria Sancta. Um, 
uh, I taught the Book of Ruth then, and it, I had a great time. I think some of the young people kind of enjoyed it as well. Um, and I, I encourage them all to read Paul Miller's book, A Loving Life Beforehand, which is it's about what it says it's about, and it's also an exposition of the Book of Ruth. It is a very, very fine piece of work. And it is not clickbaity. It is not shock jock um, theology. It is it's like theology that comes from another age where people really wanted to think carefully and hard about what they said. It's a very, very thought-provoking book. And there's some quotations um, here. Um, and I, I want to highlight just in particular one or two at this stage. There, there are some quotations about Ruth's love for the Lord. We'll come to that in a second. There's some on Ruth's love for Naomi in the middle and, and actually Naomi's love for Ruth as well. And there's some on Naomi's bitterness. We'll get to that at the end of the passage. But look at the middle section on Naomi's love for Ruth, the middle one. Oh, no, sorry, the, the first one there. So the one begins, Naomi is focused on Ruth and her needs. Right. Now, this is very insightful. Let me just read it to you. Naomi is focused on Ruth and her needs. Right? That's good. Because obviously she, she'd love to find a husband. But when we make the person we are loving, Ruth, the center of our life and not God, we are idolizing love. If love becomes the center, then Ruth's needs are more important than faithfulness to God. And I think that's such an insightful observation because I could, I would, if I were a betting man, which I'm not because betting's stupid, but if I were a betting man, I would bet my house and somebody else's farm on the thought that Naomi was well motivated in her desire to send Ruth back to Moab. She wanted the best for her, quote-unquote, the best. It's just, she just mis-evaluated what was best because she thought that what she most needs is a man. And she doesn't. She doesn't. And she'd idolised that love which unrequited or... or uh, in a person who doesn't have a a spouse, just turns into that longing for somebody to love. That thing had been kind of vicariously idolized by Naomi. I want what's best for you, my dear. Go back and find this thing that you need more than anything else. And Ruth is like, no, I don't need that more than anything else. And we're about to discover in her words why. Just flip back over the page again. Um... So, end of verse 14, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law in the sense of kissed her goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. And this is fascinating because the word translated clung is the Hebrew verb davak. It's used in two contexts in the Bible. It's used in contexts like uh, Genesis 2, 24. Um, a man will leave his father and his mother and davak to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. So, it's, it's used in terms of that love between a man and a, a woman. It's also used in contexts of Israel's cleaving to the Lord. Um, Deuteronomy 10, 20, um, to the Lord only you shall davak, you shall cleave and, or cling. But here it's used of Ruth clinging to Naomi. It's like she's simultaneously saying, and she's, she's about to express her commitment to the Lord, she's simultaneously saying two things. Firstly, I'm not going to davak to a, a husband. I'm going to davak to you. I'm going to be there for you because let me, let me tell you, lady, you're going to need me. And she does. 
come chapter two, she really needs it. But also, it's, this is how I'm going to express my love for the Lord, by cleaving to you, Naomi. And that, that's really what um, inspired the title of tonight's study, what kind of relationships do women and men really need? It's, it's both, well, we need the Lord, I mean, kind of obvious. So who do we most need in all the world? And all the under five said, Jesus, right? And what, what kind of person does Naomi need? What kind of friend does she need? A, a somewhat older widow needs a friend like Ruth. Which, you know, that takes us off in a whole different direction, doesn't it? Like, and especially, I think, perhaps ladies, um, as they're portrayed here, you know, Elimelech says nothing at all. Ruth and Orpah and Naomi are like, chat, 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 for the whole of the chapter. It's just, and that provides such a fertile context for really terrible gossiping and nastiness or really deep, edifying, strengthening relationships. And if you have a friend who will davak to you, then you found a, a real friend, a, a friend who, who will relinquish other relationships in order to care for you, and a friend for whom their, their davaking or their cleaving to you is how they show their faithfulness to the Lord. And they're going to say, they're going to call a spade a spade, as we say in England. Is that an American expression? Call a spade a spade? Yeah, phew. Not, not another one I have to translate. And, and that's what Ruth goes on and says. So, so Ruth, um, chapter 15, uh, verse 15, sorry. And she, that's Naomi, said, look, your sister's gone. Shuv. She's gone and shuved back to her people and her gods. That's the hint of the, there's a religious element to this. Um, Go and shuve after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, um, the first words that are attributed uh, only to her in the book, don't urge me to leave you. Isn't that amazing? In, in the book of Ruth, um, first words, like in any really sophisticated narrative, first words are really important. Um, so Naomi... Her first words, go, return. It's like hanging in the balance oh, to your people and your country and your mother's house. Boaz's first words, um, the Lord bless you. Or is it the Lord be with you? He says the Lord bless you, be with you and his men say the Lord bless you. Or the other way around, I forget. Well, that's good. Ruth's first, first words are, don't make me leave you. It's like... That's her life. That's what she does. She's the one who won't leave Naomi. She's the kind of friend that you need, you see. Or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. See how she merges from, I'm going to be with you, your people, your God. Because they're all one in her mind. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried, because obviously where you're buried is a, speaks of where your heart is, or where, you, where your commitments are. So Joseph, at the end of the book of Exodus, 
uh, Genesis, he's like, um, you don't leave me here. You take my bones out of here and bury them somewhere proper. <laughs> you, you, you bury my bones in the land of Canaan, not in Egypt. They're put in a box in Egypt, but then they're carried out and buried in the land of Canaan. Well, she wants to be buried wherever you are. May the Lord do so to me and more also. That's just like an invocation of um, divine judgment against her. If, any, if anything but death parts me from you, which is what a, a husband and a wife say to each other on their wedding day, isn't it? Till death us do part. So this isn't, this isn't like some same-sex wedding, obviously. But she is turning away from what, humanly speaking, is the possibility of a bright and lovely future with some handsome Moabite chap to spend herself in cleaving to her fairly grumpy, by now, mother-in-law. And you know how we know she's grumpy? Look at verse 18. (laughs) It's just hilarious. And terrible. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she sat there in a grump for the entire rest of the journey. Have you ever done that, ladies, on a car journey? You just sat there in silence for the entire journey. Please don't ever do that. Because <laughs> they talk, 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 talk the whole time. It's like, you've got to go, no, you've got to start crying tears, all this sort of stuff. Right. <laughs> They're glaring each other. I mean, it's like it's day's journey to get from Moab to Israel, and she doesn't say a single word for the entire... It's just... It is comical and pathetic, and it will destroy your marriage if you do it. So please don't. And that's what she does. My goodness. So, anyway, just to flip back over the page, and this is um, the first two quotations, just highlight what it is that... um, uh, Ruth is doing here. Um, Paul Miller has clearly read some of the the literature on um, Ruth. He's a he's a pastor, uh, but he's a scholar. Phyllis Tribble, the, the one who he's, he's quoting in the second quotation, is a is a scholar and a, a very competent one. Not evangelical or reformed, really, by any means. Uh, Adele Berlin also. But he's read the literature and he's pulled out of it the really good stuff. Here's what he says. Your people will be my people and your God my God is a radical thought. It's what Ruth says, remember? Because it signals that Ruth is changing her identity in a world where that was almost inconceivable. The ancient world had no mechanism for religious conversion or change of citizenship. The very notion was unthinkable. Religion and peoplehood defined one's ethnic identity, and this could no more be changed than the colour of one's skin. But Ruth is like, well, whatever. I care about your God and you and your people, and I want to be with you. Then Phyllis Tribble. Ruth stands alone. She possesses nothing. No God has called her. No deity has promised her blessing. Well, that's actually not true. (laughs) But she doesn't know it yet. No human being has come to her aid. It's a bit unkind to Naomi, but it's not far off from the truth. She lives and chooses without a support group, and she knows that the fruit of her decision may well be the emptiness of rejection, indeed of death. 
She's broken with family, country and faith and committed herself to the life of an old woman rather than to search for a husband. So, quite a lady. Um, So what else do we have here? Well, bear with me one moment. I'm going to shuffle through these bits of paper. Yeah, okay. I want, to sh- I want to talk with you a little bit about um, verses 19 to 22 um, because a couple of things happen here. The first is that Naomi really takes a downward turn and you, you start to see some of her bitterness of spirit and you also see what Ruth does, which is really, really wonderful. And you know, it's not like this lady has got a degree in pastoral counselling or anything, but boy, could she teach it. Um, so I want to talk about that in a couple of minutes, but I want to pause because I'm conscious I may have raised some questions that would be good to talk about for a minute or two. So any any questions you want to throw out? Yeah, KB. Yeah. Like, couldn't it have been like she said no more because she realized? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This lady's decided. Yeah. No, that's a very good question, and of course it's possible. And um, uh, See, I'm, I'm probably just not getting. No, 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 no. Because because what you're doing is you're 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 uh, opening the door to another possibility, which when you just read verse 18, you're absolutely right. Is it a moody, stomping, I'm not talking to you, facing the other way out of the car window, I'm saying no more? Or is it, okay, uh, we're, we're both grown-ups, you've made your decision, let's get on with the job. The answer comes in verses 19 to 22. Um, so now, on this occasion, the, the narrative tells us, I think, which of the, the two is more likely. But you're absolutely right, KB, that when you just have verse 18, it raises this possibility so there, there is a way of saying no more, which is highly commendable. It would be this um, older lady um, recognizing the wisdom of what this younger woman has said. You know, the, the, the most important thing for me and for her is to find the living God. Uh, yeah, the words of the wise put fools to silence. I'm, I'm not going to say any more, and that's, that's, thank you. Um, the difficulty with that reading of Naomi is because is the whole of the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 don't, don't show up. By, by chapter 3, she's, she's getting her ideas back together, and she's starting to arrange marriage, and she's happy as Larry then, because what does... Anyway, because you're laughing, because of course, what do mothers-in-law want to do? <laughs> they want to arrange marriages. Well, mothers want to do arrange marriages for their daughters. Duh. That's what Naomi wants to do. Um, Anyway, but yeah, you're right. Here, and in chapter two, she is miserable and grumpy and heading towards bitterness. So we'll look at that in a second. Um, Any other comments? Oh, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Avery. Thanks.
uh, when she changes from Naomi to the woman, yeah, I think it does have something to do with the meaning of her name. Because Naomi means pleasant or sweet, and the woman is like anonymous. So she's losing her name, which is like, if I say, hey, girl, you're like, my name is Avery. Like, what's that? Uh, um, I saw that girl at church. It's like, that's not very respectful way of treating it's making you less right so she yeah she's losing that but you're right to highlight something i didn't mention which is that she's no longer sweetness and that's really what goes on let's let's jump ahead in verse 19 and we'll pick that up so look verse 19 so the two of them see the the emphasis the two of them not just one she was left alone left alone twice in verses one to five but now it's the two of them went on until they came to the house of bread, Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred. We haven't seen her for years. Look, it's Naomi. Could this be Naomi? Oh, my goodness, look. And the women said, look, is it Naomi? And having not seen her friends for over a decade, coming back to her hometown, to her husband's, late husband's inheritance, and with her new friend in tow, and... uh, in, in the days when the barley harvest is just beginning, she says, don't call me Naomi. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Glass half full, glass half empty, no glass anywhere. Um, call me Mara. Do you know what Mara means? You've all got footnotes to tell you what Mara means. Have you got a Bible with a footnote? Bitter, bitterness. It's the name of the place in the wilderness when um, the water was undrinkable. Mara. Call me bitterness. Um, don't call me sweetie pie. Call me grumpy chops. Um, like, it really is. But it's, 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 um, it's really profoundly evocative because I think of all the name changes in Scripture. Names in Scripture are significant anyway. You might want to ask me what Ruth's name means. Uh-huh, ask me in a second. Um, names, names in scripture are significant anyway but when names are changed it's like hello it's really significant Abraham exalted father Abraham father of many Jesus has to have loads of names because he's, he's so significant Jesus Emmanuel you know, God sa- the Lord saves um, God is with us etc um, uh, wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father there's not enough names to describe who Jesus is um, uh, Peter Simon Peter um, so name changes are really significant. And this woman has the, oh, I don't know what the word is. Yeah, bitterness, really. Um, I went away. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Why? End of verse 20. Why would you call me bitterness? Yeah. God has been harsh and cruel to me. Look what he's done. He sent me away full, and I've come back empty. I've got nothing. Don't call me Naomi. Right? The Lord has testified against me. The, the word to testify means like to be a legal witness in a courtroom. The Lord has stood against me and denounced me, and the Almighty has brought calamity, disaster, evil upon me. And so there's this woman standing next to her, like, Ruth is just like, hmm. <laughs> I've got nothing apart from the girl standing next to you who's been putting up with your complaining for the entire journey until you stopped 
and just like grumpy. So she can't see the gift that's standing right next to her. Now, listen, men and women sometimes react in similar ways to hard circumstances. Um, But perhaps there are, on the average, in most circumstances, um, systematic differences. Is it possible, is it possible that though men, of course, are prone to bitterness and to the kind of temptation to give those that they love the silent treatment, women are perhaps more so. Like Men are more likely to lash out in violence. What's a woman going to do? I don't know. I, but it's just interesting that it's here. Um, there's no other word than bitterness because that's what um, Nomi almost forces us to, to say about her. You're describing yourself as the one who is bitter. And you are. Because you think wrongly that the Lord is against you and the Lord has never done anything for you and you cannot see the gift that is standing at your side like a husband cleaving to you. I mean, in chapter 4, is it chapter 4 when the women say, your daughter-in-law, who's better than ten husbands, has given birth to him. More to you than seven sons, not ten husbands. I'm thinking first Samuel and some other bits and pieces. Um, And what does Naomi say? In those final verses, 19 to 22. No, sorry, not Naomi. Pardon me. What does Ruth say? And by the way, my apologies if I've got Naomi and Ruth tangled up in the last hour and a bit. What does Ruth say in verses 19 to 22? Nothing. Nothing. Precisely. Why not, Mace? Yeah, everything that needs to be said is being said. Yeah. She's probably. She thinks she's feeling hurt feelings. Interesting. I mean, she she'd have every reason to be. And this is another one of those moments where, like KB highlighted earlier, uh, I'd not thought of this. But yeah, when you're just reading verses 19 to 22, she could easily be having hurt feelings, couldn't she? Like, I just come. I just left my family, left my land left my gods, left my people, came to a country where I don't even speak the language, and you're, you don't, you're not even like, noticing I'm here. Well, maybe, be, is, is it possible that Naomi is actually considering herself to be called bitter because of Yeah. It's like, I don't want to be associated with you, but you just wouldn't go. Yeah, yeah, it may be, because sometimes you've got that... Um, Sometimes somebody who's really angry doesn't want to be shown grace. It just because it like stings too much. I, I think this, that that's like way deeper than I can think <laughs> with this, but it may be true. I, I think what what Jeff highlighted is, is actually really interesting because it's another one of those moments when you're reading through verses 19 to 22, you might easily think, "Yeah, Ruth is just offended." Well, if you're giving me the silent treatment, I'm going to give you the silent treatment. And you're looking out that car window, I'm looking out this car window, and we can sit in silence for as long as you like. I'll go without dinner. 
and breakfast, if necessary. Hmm? So you could, until you get to chapter 2, verse 1, when it's Ruth who takes the initiative, yeah? Well, first one introduces this guy called Boaz. Verse 2, let me go out into the fields and, and try and get us some food. So it, it doesn't look like Ruth is giving her the silent treatment or, or being grumpy. Of course, that's what sometimes happens, you know, in marriages and elsewhere. Um, it's like this, what one spouse is, is in a mood and the other one will become moody as well, so as to kind of double down and I, I dare you to find something wrong with what I've done because I've got plenty wrong with what you've done, you know. Um, yeah, Mrs. Whittlesey. No, I think that's very, very wise. Yeah. Um, the, the, the final quotation, we're going to finish with this on the other side of the page. Um, I, let me, I'll say a word or two before I read this. I think what Ruth is actually doing here is she knows this is not the time to give her mother-in-law a lecture. It's like, of course, almost everything that Naomi says is wrong. The Lord has not dealt bitterly with her. He's not against her. She's not got nothing. The Lord didn't bring her back empty. He actually didn't actually send her away full either. All of these things are not true. And besides all that, she's come a couple of hundred miles from her homeland, leaving everything beside just to look after. Please show a little bit of gratitude. You want to say all these things, and sometimes it's just not the moment. Sometimes... You get your doctorate in pastoral counselling by keeping your mouth shut. And I think that's what, name, uh, what Ruth does. And the final quotation, again, this is, this is Paul Miller at his insightful, thought-provoking best. Naomi, final quotation, was interpreting God through the lens of her experience. She stopped in the middle of the story and measured God. And, the, and we're in the middle of the story here. Um, back to Bethlehem, but there's more to come. A deeper faith waits until the end of the story and interprets experience through the lens of God's faithfulness. I wish everybody would just read those three lines and think about them for like an hour. I'm not not really talking to you. I just mean I wish everybody in the world. (laughs) Get off Facebook for an hour and just think about that. Is this something we tell Naomi? No. Don't blog it. If you don't tweet it, it still happened. You you, you come to understand what she's going through and you don't need to tell her. It's what we tell ourselves. Good theology lets us endure quietly with somebody else's pain when all the pieces aren't together. 
Well, I think that's spectacularly insightful. And uh, you may have friends. You may be such a person now who needs somebody to just sort of be with you. Um, all of us probably will encounter people in those circumstances. We've lost the art of just being together, I think, um, listening, uh, timing our comments and our input. We, yeah. And Ruth is, Ruth is content to be maligned and misunderstood and ignored and taken for granted because she loves her grumpy mother-in-law and she's just trying to choose the right moment. And before we get to that, well, we'll probably get, better get some food, haven't we? And that will take us to next week. We are four minutes past the final end of Bible study. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think that's very likely. Yeah, Jeff, and that's one of the things that makes me think more positively about Elimelech, the father. That, that clearly this was a household in which Ruth could learn about the Lord. So, um, the you know you know what Ruth's name means? Yeah, nobody knows. It it could mean friend, but it's spelt wrong. Um, friend in Hebrew is re'ah, or it's female, it's re'ut. Um, Ruth is just root. And there's, a, there's an extra, well, there's, a, there's a, a consonant missing in Ruth's name, if it means friend. And so the best suggestion I ever came across was it's supposed to evoke the idea of a friend, but she's a very strange kind of friend. Now, this book is so subtle could be that, could be something else. But it, as far as people can make out, Ruth, it, does, it doesn't have, it's not a word that's used elsewhere. Re'ut means female friend, re'a, male friend. Yeah. But I like the thought that, that she's portrayed as an unusual friend. Yeah, maybe. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, uh, what we need is so often not quite what we think we need. Uh, we need friends like Ruth. We pray for the ladies here, particularly, that they would find and be such friends. We do pray, Father, for those who are single and would like to be married, just as no doubt Naomi and Ruth did, as we'll see, um, that they would find godly husbands. But above that, we pray that they would strive for what it looked like Naomi prized right at the beginning of this evening's uh, meditations, that she'd be striving after Jesus, the bread of life. We pray that for all of us, single or married. 
And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you all. Wonderful to see you. Um, Pastor Shaw, you have some instructions for us, my friend. Yeah, just an explanation. Yeah. Uh, if you're willing to help move the tables out and set up ten rows, no, eight rows of ten seats on both sides so that 160 chairs. The reason we do this is because the school has an assembly on Thursday morning.